If you've got a Bible, you're going to need it this morning because I think we're having trouble with PowerPoint. So shock horror, we're going to ask people to turn in their Bibles. Um, do you remember this thing? It's a, normally we just got it on our phones, but there is a book form of it. Um, John chapter 20. Uh, if you've got a Bible and want to turn there, if you haven't got one or you're, or you're new and, or just don't believe in the Bible, so don't carry one around with you, sorry, but I don't know if it will appear behind us. You'll have to just trust me that on what I'm reading, I'm not making up. It does actually come from this book. Uh, I'm going to be speaking this morning uh, on our last sermon, our last message during our teaching series where we've been looking at God the Father. For six weeks, we've been going through the Gospel of John and noting some of the examples, some of the times that Jesus talks about God as Father and seeing what we can learn uh, so the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are, are stories of the life and works of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. And the Gospel of John is one of those Gospels. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to God as Father over a hundred times. It's one of the big ideas of the Gospel. Uh, and actually, it's one of the big reasons that Jesus ends up getting crucified is because he is insistent that God is his Father, which in the eyes of his hearers made him, made him equal with God. He was someone who talked as though he had equality with God, the awesome, powerful, universe-creating God that we've been singing about and singing to. Jesus said, well, I'm his son, so I'm, kinda, I'm equal with him. And in the, he- in the ears of the hearers of his day, that was blasphemy. And that was one of the big reasons that they ended up killing him. Now, I say I'm doing the last message in our series, but I'm actually doing a two-parter. So we split it over two because I figured you know, that way I can squeeze out more about God the Father because I think it's, it's worthwhile. I'm going to be talking about this, this idea that uh, when it comes to our relationship with God, um, ident- uh, intimacy with the Father and receiving our identity from the Father must always precede or come before activity for the Father. So our intimacy and our identity comes before our activity for the Father, for God as Christians or as just people living in the world. And that's what we're going to be looking at today and next week as well. I'm also wanting to mix things up a little bit this morning um, because in a moment's time, we're going to break bread together. So at the start of my message, I want us to break bread, which I know kind of breaks all kinds of tradition and makes us feel very nervous because, you know, whenever we introduce change, um, it makes us uncomfortable. But it's okay. You can bear with me. Because I want us to go on the journey um, from the cross, the Last Supper, the cross crucifixion of Jesus. And then today in John 20, we're going to be looking at the resurrection account of Jesus. So I mentioned that they crucified Jesus um, for, one, for one of the reasons they crucified him was because of him calling God Father. The other one was because he was acting like and saying things that made him sound awfully like an insurgent or a revolutionary. Um, Caesar was king over the known world at that time, but Jesus came along talking of himself as king, saying outrageous things like, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And people thought, that sounds like the kind of thing a rebel revolutionary would say. And the Jewish people thought, we've heard people say things like that before. And they got us into a lot of trouble with the Romans. And so the the religious leaders and the political leaders of Jesus' day conspired with one another against Jesus to have him killed. They arrested him at the end of what's become known as the Last Supper in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Judas led a band of uh, Roman soldiers or Jewish leaders to come and arrest Jesus. He identified Jesus with a kiss, betrayed him with a kiss. Jesus was then brought before this kind of kangaroo court where various individuals had been bribed to make up false allegations about Jesus. They uh, handed him over to Pontius Pilate, 
who then handed him over to some Roman soldiers who beat him and mocked him, pulled his beard out, uh, shoved a crown of thorns on his head, um, blindfolded him and whacked him with a stick and taunted him saying, prophesy which one of us hit you. Then after that, Pontius Pilate decided that wasn't enough, so they scourged him, which, was, uh, 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 which meant that they whipped him uh, 39 times with something known as a cat and nine tails whip, uh, which was a leather whip with several cords of leather at the end, each of them having bone or, or metal um, at the end of the tassels. And so when they whipped Jesus, the metal and bone would dig into his back and then they'd pull it out and they'd whip him again and again. They did that 39 times, uh, making... Um, just a mess of his back. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, several hundred years before this occasion, said that Jesus be- was to become one from whom men hid their faces and that he was someone whose appearance was marred beyond that of human recognition. They mutilated him. Um, reminds me of Mercutio in Romeo and Julia who said, they've made worms meat of me. Jesus could have, have said that. It was true of Jesus. Having gone through all that, he was then sentenced to death by a Roman crucifixion. He was forced to carry his cross outside of the city. Um, a man who was already battered and broken, being forced to carry a heavy crossbar outside a city, up a hill, with people taunting him and goading him the whole way. Along the way, it became so much for him that he collapsed and the, the crowd, the Roman soldiers, uh, made one man, Simon of Cyrene, help Jesus carry his cross that extra distance. Jesus got eventually to the, the hill, the place of the skull outside the city where they um, nailed his forearms and his, uh, drove nails through his forearms and his shins and pinned him to the wooden cross, which they then erected upright on this hill overlooking the city. Jesus then hung there for hours in an agonizing death um, as his life slowly drained away and people still mocked him, abused him, taunted him, said, oh, you said you were a man of God, come down from the cross then. Jesus eventually died a death, a criminal's death outside the city in around about 33 AD on what's become known as Good Friday. That's a cheerful way to start any sermon, isn't it? Uh, But the reason I wanted to portray and explain for us the crucifixion account again is because I want us to understand something. People don't recover from that kind of treatment. They don't get up two days later and just go about normality. But with that image in our mind, uh, I'm going to invite us to now just break bread um, we're going to go to the tables. There's one at the front, one at the back. There's a, a shot of juice and some bread you can rip off, take it back to your seats. And then when we're back in our seats, I'm going to read for us from John 20 uh, as we look at the, what happened on the first Easter morning and see what we can glean from that. So I invite you to stand now and go and grab some juice and some bread and let's engage with this together.
Jesus died, the Bible tells us, or makes it clear that Jesus died in our place for our sin. So that the wrong that we've done gets placed onto him. It's the great exchange. He takes your sin and you got his goodness and righteousness. That's why we call it Good Friday. On the Sunday after the Friday, two days later, um, some women went to the, plot, went to the tomb that they buried, buried him in. It was a tomb that never been used before, owned by a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. These women went to the tomb with spices to prepare his body for burial. These women were getting ready for a funeral. That's what they were doing. They weren't expecting to find anything other than a dead body. They were expecting to prepare their Lord, their Savior's body for a funeral. The man they thought was going to rescue them from the Romans and restore their sense of national pride, restore their sense of God's call on them. They thought he was going to do that, but he died. So they were going to prepare his body for burial. This is what John chapter 20 says. Verses, I'm going to read verses 1 to 23. It's a fairly lengthy reading. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes." But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. This is the first ever Christian sermon. Um, Not this one, that one. When Jesus said to Mary, um, go and tell my brothers this. He was giving her the first ever piece of Christian news that was to be proclaimed. And it was news about our status. Our status as Christians. Jesus didn't begin by saying, go and tell them I've got this strategy of world domination. He didn't even start by saying, I'm alive. Go and tell them I'm alive. Like, woohoo, isn't this good? You thought I was dead, but I'm back from the dead, and now I'm back with power. Let's go. That's not how he begun. That's how I would have begun. He didn't. He said, go and tell them this. And then he says the strange phrase. He says, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God, which is an unusual thing to say. It's not how we normally talk. You, don't, you didn't say this morning, oh, I'm off to church, to my church and your church. I'm going to see my friends, my friends and your friends. He didn't do that. He probably said our church, our friends. Or if you would have said my church and your church, you would have done that for a particular reason, to make a point. Jesus is wanting to make a point to Mary that the relationship he has with his father is the same as the relationship that we have with our father. And he gives her this little word then, doesn't he? This tiny little word, four letters, your. I'm ascending to your father. One word, and yet a whole world of difference. Now, with just one word, relationships can change very dramatically, can't they? I'm sure you've had that experience in life where someone that you knew, an acquaintance perhaps, used the word friend of you in talking to someone. And you realized, oh, I'm not just a friend. Or your colleague might say on the phone, I'm going out for a drink with some of my friends, meaning you. And you think, oh, I'm not just his colleague. I'm not just her colleague. They think of me as friend. And that word friend changes your relationship. Or those of you who've ever been in love and said those three words, I love you, to someone, you know that when you say those words, your relationship changes, doesn't it? Rather embarrassingly, I remember the occasion that I first told Amy, who's now my wife, that I love her, and it wasn't the most classy affair. Uh, we, we had got together for a curry, um, and I, told, I decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell Amy that I love her. It's been five years, <laughs> it's been five months, and I'm going to tell her that I love her. Here we go. Um, I didn't know how to do it because I was nervous and I was worried that if I told her I loved her, suddenly there was a whole new world of commitment required of me and I was scared. So I plucked up the courage and we were making curry and this is how I did it. I put some naan bread into the oven to cook the naan bread for the curry and I said to Amy, I said, I love naan bread. And she said, ah. And I said, do you know what else I love? (laughs) She said, no. And I said, you. (laughs) That was really awkward. And she went, I love you too. I was like, good, okay, good. That's out of the way then. Uh, it wasn't the, the best and fanciest way to tell someone you love them, but it was, it was enough. It did, the, it did what it needed to do. And after I said those words, our relationship changed. There was a new level of intimacy, um, a new level of security even. Um, so the, uh, just one word can bring new intimacy to a relationship with a friend or I love you. Jesus says this to Mary, to your, to your father. And there's a new intimacy that comes with that. One word and a whole world of difference. But it's not just intimacy, it's also identity. Uh, One word gives you a whole new identity, whether it's friend or person someone's loved. 
Um, when I first became a dad, um, or, you, or when you first became a mom or a dad, and the midwife or doctor handed you the baby and said, here you go, dad, you thought, are you talking to me? Really? Do you know how irresponsible I am? You're calling me dad. But with that one word, your identity changed. It was wonderful. This morning as we were praying, um, Paul Jeffrey was in the middle of a prayer and his phone went off and he ran out to take the phone call. And I thought, that's odd. You're praying and suddenly you think, sorry, God, I must take this call. But come back in. But he came back in and, and he said, I've just become a granddad. I thought, oh, that is good. If ever there's a time to say, yeah, we can give that a round of applause. I thought, if ever there's a time to say, I'll be back in a minute, Lord, and to take a phone call, it's then. With that word granddad, or so Amy's become a grandma or nanny or however she wants to be known. <laughs> Nana, something young and trendy probably, because um, she's young and trendy. But, but with one word, your identity changes. Your identity changes. Now, when you became a dad or a mom, you had this new word, this new label attached to who you are, your person. And you could, if you wanted to, just carry on as though your identity hasn't changed. I'm not, I mean, I know I've got the word dad, but I'm going to pretend like I'm not a dad. I'm not going to be a granddad, thank you. You could do that. And it has disastrous consequences, or it can have disastrous consequences for, for children's lives. Because you're my dad, but you're not acting like it because you haven't understood. Your identity's changed. You must drive slower now. <laughs> you must be more careful with your um, personal safety and the safety of those that your, your behavior must change. Now, as Christians, as Christians, we can act like, and we do this a lot, act like, I'm just a slave of God, or I'm a servant of God. Servant of God, yes, I'm very humble, I'm his servant. You can act like that, but God is always going to treat you like child, because that's what you are. And so often we come to God and say, oh, here I am, um, I'm sorry I've done this, I'm sorry I didn't do that. And he's like, hey, son, daughter, regardless of how you see yourself, your identity has changed, because that word has made a world of difference. Now, when my kids do something wrong, which is increasingly often, um, the older they get, the, the more they're just pushing the boundaries, we should say. And when they do something wrong, they're in the habit at the moment of running upstairs and hiding under their beds. And when I come upstairs to confront them about what they've done, do I treat them like a rebel, the insurgents, the, the pests that they are? Do I? No, I don't. You're still my son. doesn't matter how you behave. I'm still going to treat you like a son or like a daughter. And so we see this, the intimacy with God, identity from God, it comes before activity. Before Jesus says, Mary, go and do this for me. I've got a job for you. Before that, there's some other things that take place. So I want us to just spend some time in the scene of this story for a few minutes, immerse ourselves in the moment, and imagine what it must have been like for them. So there's Mary, who is going to the tomb, as we said, to prepare the body of her Lord for burial. And she has this unexpected surprise that he's not there. <laughs> but whatever is happening, as she arrives to the tomb, despair is in the air because she, as a woman, has been so impacted by the life of this man. Um, the Bible says that Mary Magdalene, uh, she was one from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. Whatever else that means, it means that Mary, before she met Jesus, her life was oppressed by the enemy. She was unclean. She was in all likelihood an outcast in her society. She was um, just treated like a plaything of the devil and unable to have the kind of fruitful life that she had perhaps aspired of and grown up hoping for. She wore labels like broken and damaged and scarred. She was a victim. 
At some point in her life, the enemy had got a, a hold of her and had come into her life and, and wrecked it. Her life was in ruins. She had no hope. And then she met Jesus. And Jesus cast seven demons out of her. So made her clean, made her whole, gave her a hope and a future and a destiny. In a society where women like that would have just been marginalized, Jesus treats her with huge honor. She becomes one of, her, one of his closest followers. She's entrusted with the first ever Christian message. You know, in a society that didn't value the, the um, what's the word, the, the testimony of a woman. In, a, in that society, the testimony of a woman wouldn't stand up in the court of law. And yet, so what does Jesus do? He entrusts the first ever testimony to a woman, to women. And in so doing, you see how much God, the Bible, Christians have always held women in a very high regard. Treated them with such honor and dignity in a society that didn't. Christians were the first feminists. They were the ones who championed the women's rights and cause of women. Regardless of how people have interpreted it and applied it through the centuries, you can see here that women are treated with remarkable dignity. When the men gave up, went home, confused, the women stuck it out to care for their Lord. Because you see, for Mary, the one that she'd put her hopes in was gone. She'd pinned all our hopes on him and they'd pinned him to a tree and treated him like a criminal. And then there's this amazing moment where he hears that word, Mary. And the one who'd rescued her spoke into her life afresh. The voice that had cast out the evil and brought wholeness to her is now speaking to her again. Just one word and yet a whole world of difference for her. Mary. And the way we read it, it's, it's quite strange. Um, and it, it reads quite quick. He says Mary. She says Rabboni or teacher. And then Jesus says, don't hold on to, don't, you know, don't cling too tight to me because I haven't ascended. And you read it very quick. Now for Jesus to have said, don't cling to me, she must have clung to him. So the scene is more like, he says Mary, she says Rabboni, teacher, and then there's this embrace. There's this restoration of their relationship and she's clinging to him. He's back. The one that I hoped in has returned. He didn't die, or he did, but he's back. I'm confused, but this is wonderful. She must have squeezed him pretty tight. And then you get the him, don't hold on to me too tight. Don't cling on too tight because I haven't yet ascended. I'm not staying forever in this same way. So he goes. That's how the scene more uh, was played out, I think, rather than the quick way that we can read it. You see, this is how God treats victims. This is how God treats victims. It's how God treats people who've been marginalized, oppressed, bullied, abused, shamed, scarred, people who've been robbed of dignity, robbed of hope. This is how God treats them. By restoring them, by loving them, by embracing them. But he doesn't stop there. God then commissions them, commissions you. No matter what you've been through, no matter where you've gone, what you've done, no matter what people have done to you, God embraces you. He speaks one word. He speaks your name. He says, John, Stuart, Allison, Steve. He speaks to you and says, I know what they've done. I know what you've done. I know how you've been treated. And he cleans us up, but he doesn't stop there. He then entrusts us with great privilege and responsibility. 
People who have been victims feel that label victim or abused or scarred. They feel it. They feel like people look at them and see that. And actually, in the, so for a lot of people in the world's eyes, that's how you live. Oh, you'll always be this. Jesus doesn't. He says, now go be the first ever preacher of this good news. So that's Mary. Let's look at the disciples, because the disciples are very different from Mary, how they respond. There's this strange moment where, um, where John, who's writing this gospel, feels the need to record that he outran Peter. <laughs> he mentions it two or three times. In case you didn't get it, I ran faster than he did. Which I've always thought is just a, a hilarious piece of information to put in this otherwise remarkable story. Why would he do that? I think he did it for this reason. The disciples had been the bright lights. They'd been the shining stars. They'd been the, the boys on the block who were going places. They'd been chosen by God. They'd been appointed by the Messiah to, to lead this movement that was going to change the world. They were part of the in club. Their future was hope. Their future was bright. They had hope. They had a destiny. They could have said, I, I always knew I was going to amount to something special in life. And now Jesus has picked me to be part of his 12. Here I go. They were those guys. They were the guys that when Jesus said, you're all going to desert me. They said, no, we're not. He might. I won't. You imagine a group of men. You're telling them, you're all going to flunk it. You're going to fail. No, I won't. They will. Of course I won't. You don't know me. Well, they did. They all flunked it. Maybe with the exception of John. But Peter certainly flunked it. He certainly failed. He denied that he ever knew Jesus. A servant girl asked him. And he, he was too scared. He was full of the fear of man. Peter was. And so then there's this scene where they're running to the tomb. And Peter's hanging back. Oh, wouldn't you? <laughs> I would. He, we think he's alive. Let's go. And then you're running and Peter's like, ah, oh, he's alive? You mean I'm going to have to see him again after what I did? After how I failed? After how I disappointed him? After how I quit? That's the disciples' stories. People who are going places who are, who are now quitters and failures Maybe you felt at one time like my future was bright in God once. I was the leader of RCU. I led a home group. I led someone to Christ. I was involved in setting up this mercy ministry. I've always had a big heart for the poor. I was always God's favorite. And then I quit or I failed. I did something stupid. It's not that I'm a victim. I did it myself. I, I knew what I was doing. I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle being a Christian. I'm a hypocrite. So I wrote myself off altogether. Certainly that was my story. When I first went to uni, a new Christian in an unusual environment, and I just felt, I'm a hypocrite. I can't do this Christian thing. I'm just going to pretend I'm not a Christian now and bury my head in the world and just get stuck in with what they do. Pretend, ignore Jesus. So that's how they felt as they approached the tomb. They look inside, he's not there. Confusion. They don't know their Bibles well enough to know that the Scriptures have said he's going to rise from the dead. And what did they do? When they saw this amazing moment, they went home. <laughs> the men couldn't stick it out. They didn't have the patience to work out this mystery. I'm just going to go home. That's very confusing. So, so often we quit or we give up just a few moments before the breakthrough that we want. Or we, we know, we think, oh, I know it's hard. I've got to persevere. And then we think, oh, but persevering is tiring. It's hard. Things, Rome isn't built in a day. Uh, God doesn't change me in a moment. I'm just going to give up. Had they have hung around a little bit longer, they might have been different. But they went home and then Mary arrives and says, guys, I've got, I've got a message. I've been with Jesus. He's alive. I've got, I mean, do you love how Mary does it, by the way? 
So Jesus doesn't say, go and, tell the, go and see the disciples and tell them, I'm alive. He doesn't. He, he gets straight to the point. Whereas Mary arrives and she's like, I can't help it. He's alive. That's not part of his message. That's my message. Here's his message. And you can imagine her gathering the disciples around and saying, I've seen him and he's got a message for you. And the message is this. He's very angry at you. You let him down. I've got this message from Jesus and it's this. He wishes he never picked you. And he's alive, but he's going to go pick some other guys now who won't quit, who won't fail him. Jesus has got this message for you, and it's, I'm sorry I didn't realize what kind of a mess you are in when I first got hold of you. I'm going to go find other people who are less messy. That's the message. It doesn't say that. The message is this. I've got a message for you, and it's this. You're in. You made it. You've made the cut. He calls you brother. He called you brothers. He says you're part of his family. This is the message. He said, I'm ascending to your God, your Father and my Father. My Father and your Father. My God and your God. Jesus speaks words of identity over these failures. This is how God treats failures. This is how God treats people who quit, who let him down and disappoint him. He kicks him to the curb. No, he doesn't. He says, but you're my child. The book of Hebrews says that he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Do you know what I've done? Of course, I'm God, but you're my brother. You're my sister. And I'm an older brother who doesn't quit. And when my younger brothers and sisters squander their livelihood, I go after them. I rescue them. I bring them back. I restore them. Oh, and I'm ascending to my father and your father. Now, Jesus had said these kind of things to his disciples throughout his ministry. In John 15, we looked at it, uh, where he says, No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. Do you get it? There's, a, there's a, an identity change, but they didn't get it. In John 16, we looked at last time, he says, The Father loves you, but they still didn't get it. And now he has to say it again. I'm going to my Father, who's your Father. This is how God treats failures, restores dignity restores them to a place of privilege. He entrusts them again with opportunity. This is what God does when he comes to our pity parties. You know, we throw pity parties because I'm such a mess. God comes, turns the music down, pops the balloons, takes the streamers down, takes the bunting down, says, there's no need for a pity party anymore. You're my son, you're my daughter, and we've got a job to do. We've got a kingdom to establish. We've got a world to rescue. And who are you going to pick for that? You, you're coming, you're in. Do you know what I'm like? Of course, but I've taken the streamers down, I've popped the balloons, I've turned the music off. No more pity. You're a son, you're a daughter. But life's hard, Lord, I can't do this. I I doubt you all the time. I know, but then he says, take heart, for I've overcome the world. You're talking to one who's been through what you've been through. The Bible says he's been tempted and tested in every way. He knows what it's like to face fear from without, people trying to take his lives. He knows what it's like to look into the future and think, it looks bleak. He knows what it's like to be rejected by his friends, to have the people closest to him quit and give up. He knows what it's like. And he overcame. He's able to relate. And he still calls you brother, sister, son, daughter. And then there's this moment, having restored Mary's intimacy and given the disciples a new identity. He then commissions them with their activity. He tells them what to do. He tells them about the kingdom coming. And we're going to pick up next week looking at that idea, the moment where Jesus appears and says, 
the, uh, breathes on them, strange moment, gives them the Holy Spirit and commissions them for a task. But he does all of that in light of these things. Intimacy and identity. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. Jesus' blood has made us whole, washed us clean. We have become, we are now children forever. If you have trusted in Christ to forgive you for your sin, been baptized as a believer, raised to new life, he says, you are my son, you're my daughter, and you're a child forever. The Father is our Father. I'm going to invite um, Claire and Peter up now. They're going to sing a, a song of response that I'd like us to engage with just by watching, listening to the lyrics, allowing this to almost be prophetic. God singing over you. Um, after that, we'll have a, another song of response that we can join in with. But for this occasion, let's sit, let's listen, and let's enjoy the truth that you are God's child and you're his child forever. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we've become children forever. Thank you that you are our Father. That whether we feel like Mary or like the disciples, your response to us is still the same. You're a God who pursues intimacy with us, who gives us a new identity and then commissions us for privilege, activity, responsibility. I thank you, God, for the security that we have as children of yours.